0: Hello, and welcome to Newsmakers, a periodic podcast from Columbus Business First. Today's guest is Andy Lonsbury, CEO of Path Robotics, which makes AI-powered systems for industrial robots. The company moved to Columbus a few years ago from Cleveland, where Lonsbury founded it along with his brother, Alex, and Matt Klein. All three of them were doctoral engineering students at Case Western at the time. Their fourth founder, working more on the business side, is the Lonsberry's dad, Ken. Five years ago, a custom automotive and marine manufacturer up in Cleveland asked PATH to do the impossible. Outfit an industrial robot with all the skills of a human welder, like forethought, complex decision-making, and real-time adjustments of the welding gun at a sub-millimeter level. There are a few terms that will come up in the interview that need defining if they're out of context. Tier one automotive, are very large suppliers to the big automakers. And my favorite, puddle, is the molten metal formed during a well before it quickly hardens. We'll talk about how the group tackled that impossible problem, what it's like to work in a cramped industrial basement with three very smart engineers and two robots, and why at first Andy Lonsbury told Columbus VC firm, Drive Capital, go away. Hope you enjoy. And thanks, as always, for listening. Hello, and welcome to Columbus Business First. Uh, today's guest is Andy Lonsbury, the co-founder and CEO of Path Robotics here in Columbus. Actually, in a really cool spot uh, in a warehouse warehouse right off of Audubon Park. So everyone at lunch hour can go and like hit the sand volleyball courts and ride their bikes, look for frogs. PATH was brought here, right, by Drive Capital when they initially invested. You were founded elsewhere?
1: Yeah, we were founded in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, uh, and then moved down to Columbus, Ohio after taking uh,
0: our first investment
1: round um, from Drive Capital.
0: The exciting new development is that you have raised your Series B, pretty big round for the Columbus area, $56 million, uh, which brings a cumulative since founding to $71 million. Um, And this is for uh, a, a unique kind of tech startup for Columbus in that you have a physical product. It is software, it is AI, but it's attached to a smart robot that can weld and kind of takes the drudge work away for the human welders so they can be more creative and productive, am I putting that correctly?
1: That's it, that's exactly it.
0: Before we get to the exciting part about the money and the expansion, uh, let's start with the pain. So what was, uh, I assume your background is in engineering and what was the inspiration for starting this company? And how did you solve the technical problem that you had to solve?
1: My background personally is engineering. Um, Started this company with my brother, who is uh, my co-founder. We were both doing our PhDs at the time at Case Western. His research kind of focused on biologically spiking recurrent neural networks. My research focused on machine learning, but specifically for solving a control problem for high degree of freedom, nonlinear systems. Really, really specifically, it was for bipedal walking robots. That was what I really was passionate about while I was doing my PhD. We started this company, you know, really because we had just a a passion for entrepreneurship. So we started this company as an engineering consulting firm, not knowing what problem to solve and not knowing exactly what market to go after, but knowing that we wanted to create something uh, that would add a lot of value to the manufacturing sector. And so essentially, we started this consulting firm and we started exploring Northeast Ohio's manufacturing uh, market until that one day when we found welding to be that big pain point that we wanted to start tackling. And so it took us about 24 months of exploring Northeast Ohio's manufacturing market until that until that faithful day when we walked into a customer's facility and uh, we were there to talk about finite element analysis and the president of the company walked in and said, let's not talk about this. let's talk about welding. And they told us the story about how they had a number of human welders. Anytime there was a spike in oil and gas, they could see one or two of them leave to Texas to make hundred plus dollars an hour. They had this huge pain point in their manufacturing processes, and it all revolved around finish welding. They were a made-to-order manufacturer, so they were a cash flow business. They didn't want to put a ton of inventory on the racks. They really wanted to be able to get an order, make the system, and then ship it out. Um, and so, because of that. It's a very high-mix, low-volume business that's on a continuous cycle. They had two options. One was kind of looking at outsourcing to handle their their issues, and another was looking at robotics. Both solutions really aren't viable for a high-mix company. Those are really meant more for super high-volume companies, companies that are making hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of the exact same product for a company that's small and trying to make something on demand and on the fly, and they have thousands of different products at their availability to be, that have to be made, there just really isn't a great solution out there. So they kind of pose the question to us, you know, we have this huge pain point in finished welding, is there any way that you could take a robot? Um, can you make it smarter so it has the ability to see, understand what's in front of it, program itself, make all the adjustments that a human welder would do so that it popped out a quality part without any sort of uh, interaction or need from a user to determine what it should be doing.
0: Sounds simple.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, right. <laughs> and so, yeah, they basically describe, can you replicate somebody that has the intellect to be able to be a skilled uh, laborer, that has the training to be a skilled laborer? It, it's not really an easy problem because skilled welders, it normally takes three to six months of apprenticeship to be able to... to a point where you can produce and really uh, output great welds so it's certainly a challenging problem and it took a lot of problem solving to get to the solution state that we're at today and it certainly wasn't incredibly fast Uh, i've been working on this problem now for almost five years Um, so it wasn't a fast let me just uh, spin up a little back end and then hit this thing and hit go it's been uh, quite an adventure of of tech building to get to this point
0: From that first meeting, how long, if you've been working on it for five years, but you've had a product out, so how long did it take before you could bring that company something that, you know, some kind of product that would do a weld? So it was about, I say 12 to 18 months. I don't exactly remember the
1: timeline now, since it was a little while ago, but somewhere between that 12 to 18 months is when we um, actually deployed the first two systems at their facility. Um, so it, it was twelve to eighteen months of living in a basement, and not quite just like your family's or your, uh, you know, your cousin's basement or anything like that. It Was living in the basement of a foundry. So no windows, underground, in a small two hundred square foot spot with you know two other people and two robots. Um, it was pretty tight quarters. And did that company fund the prototyping that you? Yes, yeah, so that okay. company uh, funded the prototype. Uh, path retained all the ip but that company got a perpetual license to utilize the software uh, into the future
0: do the um you know because it was quote unquote his idea does does he have a an owner you know like this is what i want the thing to do you go solve it um you did all the invention does he have like some kind of ownership in the ip or inventorship no they don't They, they just have um
1: they just had that perpetual right to utilize the license. Um, we retained all the IP. It was a great idea they had, uh, which was help us automate welding. <laughs> yeah. But it's an idea that's been around for a long time. So one of the most difficult parts about what we're doing is just the ability to make all these minor adjustments continuously on the fly. People have been trying to do this for um, you know decades at this point to make something smart enough that it could learn from what it was doing. Uh, that was able to adjust on the fly, that was looking at something before and after uh, to be say, yes, this was good. No, this was bad. Let me make this adjustment. From their perspective, it was uh, something they really wanted, uh, but it was really all on us to go solve, solve the problem.
0: Right. So the state of industrial robotics before this was the car is coming down the rack and yeah. this robot can go through these points and angles in, and be at this precise space um, at this precise moment and screw in that bolt and then move this many degrees and screw in that bolt. Um, exactly. But it, like you said, you can't like build exactly.
1: it. Exactly, so uh, current state of industrial robots, they're all manually programmed, which means there's an operator there that's telling the robot to go point to point to point to point, screw this nut, grab this thing out of the box. And it's really just position control. And so what's happening after that skilled user Tells the robot what to do, it can only ever repeat the exact same actions. So just right. right. If you move the box, it's all messed up, right? Move the box by a millimeter or if it's slightly bent. um, And anyone that's ever worked with sheet metal um, would know that a perfect 90 degrees doesn't exist. Uh, You know, everything floats between 95, 100, you know, 85, and every single small degree or fraction of change is a massive inconvenience or a massive failure point for industrial robots and then um, especially with welding the tolerances are so tight so um, the first time one of the first times we welded a a part for that that first customer we were about one millimeter which is like 10 human hairs too close to the part and instead of welding it we cut the part directly in half Um, and then if you're one millimeter too far away we don't have fusion. Um, and so the part is an actual structural, structurally welded together. So the, the tolerances are incredibly tight that you have to keep with welding. And if the gaps change from zero to four millimeters, you have to be able to make adjustments on the fly, seeing what's coming, uh, move to a weave, go up onto the lip, weld in. And these again are things that come very easily for uh, a trained human welder, but for a robot, it's just impossible. Um, and so to be able to get that sort of repeatability to like, so for tier one automotive, they can force a you know, hundred million dollar build of a custom automation project. They can force standards and tolerances down to the sub millimeter on all their parts to run through the line. And so because of it, they can do a one-time program of a robot and watch it repeat
0: and repeat and repeat and repeat. Most of the world cannot go. For someone who would not have a PhD in engineering, how does your robots? I assume there are like cameras and heat sensors and um, a lot of artificial intelligence involved. So yeah, we have cameras. We've got lasers. Um, we're sensing what's
1: going on from the welder in terms of voltage and current and wire speed. There's a lot of inputs into the system, and it's really necessary. Again. For a human welder, they're constantly looking at the puddle, they're looking at the parts, they intuitively intuitively have this understanding of um, what they just did and what they're going to do in the future. And a lot of that is what we're baking into the system, is the ability to not only see the part, but really understand the operation at hand. And to be able to understand the operation at hand, you have to be able to utilize data um, to make new improvements and to kind of learn and let the system learn from what it just did. And that's the big piece that we focus on The PATH is we're not trying to change an industrial robot. We buy industrial robots off the shelf. Uh, We're really trying to add that layer of intelligence to robots that allow them to learn from failure, that allow them to see uh, what they're looking at and to try to give robots the ability to add context to the operation that they're doing. And that's the big part that Uh, we're trying to continue to focus on to improve that level of intelligence for robots.
0: So you didn't create a robot, you added cameras and AI to an off-the-shelf robot. Exactly. And that first customer is still with you?
1: They are. I
0: I saw you uh, give a a talk at Columbus Metro Club that it was such a great anecdote, it became the headline uh, which was and I, I bet it's this <laughs> this incident where you cut the part in half yeah. that the work you know to to train this AI you had to have actual human welders teach you how welding works teach the robot how welding works and they're fearful they are training a robot to take their job so they they absolutely loved it when it messed up correct <laughs> yes <laughs> so oh, yeah. uh, but there's a, a twist to that of how the headline was, From Laughter to Fear to Acceptance. So um, describe that arc, a welding yeah. arc, if you will.
1: Yeah. So I mean, yeah, when we first deployed, it wasn't, wasn't great. It was a system built by you know three people in a basement. It was very premature tech. And so uh, there was a lot that we still had to learn. There was a lot that the robots still needed to learn. Um, and so at the very beginning, it yeah it cut parts in half. It missed, um, it'd fall out of calibration. It would detect what it thought should be welded in wrong spots. Um, I mean, again, this is part of what we're trying to build is something that we do allow to fail at the beginning and something that you know, continues to improve on its own. Um, so yeah, it was a bit of embarrassment at the beginning. And I would say uh, the welders there really, really enjoyed our presence at the beginning to like wake up to a good laugh in the morning and then uh, get going on on their job. Um, But then it started to turn um, and the system started to work better and better and better. Um, And instead of cutting parts in half, we started welding more consistently. We started to get more parts out. And the quality really started to improve. And there is a big difference between uh, quality coming out of our system versus a a human welders from the perspective of we can really control a lot of parameters within fractions of a millimeter which gives us that ability for consistency. Um, We have the ability to see further in front of us to make bigger adjustments of what we wanna do compared to a human welder. And so our quality coming out of our system started to get really, really, really good um, to the point where it was very clear that this was uh, welded by a robot, this is welded by a human. And there's more things kind of going through the system. I, I think the natural arc for anyone at that point is to start to feel concerned about well, this thing is now becoming as as good as I am um, at the job that I'm doing. And so it's kind of, you know, looking at um, a, a potential competitor in your space. And so there's certainly that level, I think, from the people on the, the from the welders on the shop floor where this started to become, uh, went from a joke to a, a real possibility of concern for uh, their positions uh, at TMG. But the president of that company, like all the other companies that we're working with made it incredibly clear that this wasn't here to replicate or replace, that this was here to help add, reinforce, and allow our company to grow and be more competitive. Um, So there hasn't been any welders that have ever been let go because one of our systems is going uh, going into place. And I think that's when that level of acceptance kind of turned on, where they also realized that this system can start to do a lot of the work that they don't want to do. Um, So one of the best things about being human is just the sheer skill set that we intuitively all have and solving harder and harder problems is usually pretty stimulating for people. Uh, Doing the same operation and welding with the weld gun on for hours at a time is pretty stressful, pretty straining on the bodies. It's really terrible for your eyes and can be bad for your lungs as well. And so starting to get comfortable with the idea of passing the hardest work to the robot from the perspective of hardest for the human welder from not having to bend over not have to be staring at the light that much started to become uh, a more of a positive in the end. And it really allowed them to focus on the harder more creative work of really doing what they'd want to do by um, trying and testing out and building new things.
0: Uh, at the outset, you mentioned that the talent war, um, you lose, uh, the company would lose folks to the oil and gas industry where they could pay more. If you're augmenting their, you know, taking away the drudge work and creating a position that thus becomes more creative, does that actually help their wages? Oh, definitely. Yeah, 100%. So I think we're seeing this a lot in
1: robotics as well, whereas robotics are taking some of the more repetitive work, um, as it's obviously easier for a robot to repeat the same operation, uh, taking over some of the the work that is less utilizing the creativity and complexity of like what a human can do. And so it's opening up more roles for people to continue to expand up and above that. And I think we're just gonna see this greatly increase into the future. I mean, the world is becoming a, not only a made to order world, but a world of customization uh, and change. Um, you know, prototyping is at, at basically an all-time high. Uh, the world of being able to make something new—I mean—we're constantly pushing on continuous improvement, continuous development, and I think that is only going to continue to be a big focus of the the world in general. And that's going to be where people can continue to explore, be creative, and build something new.
0: Uh, for your company. The fact that you are building software and additive things, you don't have to build entire robots. That is an element of scalability, right? That's how you can grow much, much faster by putting this in more factories.
1: Exactly, yeah. So we're we're mainly a software company. Um, We buy a lot of hardware off the shelf. Um, So we focus on computer vision, machine learning, AI, Robotics control systems, um, software, front end, back end, middleware. Um, so heavily, heavily on the on the software side. We still do have a, a really exceptional hardware team um, that helps us with you know anything from productizing the entire package. Uh, but yeah, mainly a software company, and so that certainly helps us scale, scale headcount, um, move quickly, and scale into uh, production and into additional deployments. And so that's a. That's a big thing for us at our our company is, you know, basically being a a larger software company.
0: How did you get hooked up with Drive Capital and why did they urge you to move to Columbus and why then did you do it?
1: Right after we deployed those first systems to our first customer, I decided I never wanted to live in a basement again for uh, (laughs) 18 months. Really? (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't go back to it. Um, It was a great experience in a lot of ways, learned a lot very quickly, learned what it was like to build something truly from the ground up. But that was past that part in my life and I think my co-founders were as well. And we really wanted to go see if we could uh, secure funding to grow a little bit more rapidly and build out a team around us. Um, so flew out to Silicon Valley, didn't really know anybody, um, had one contact that worked at Stanford Research Institute. He introduced us to uh, a VC. The very first VC we met with was really excited about the technology we were building. Um, So they put us into a diligence round where that means they introduced us to a bunch of their CEOs. Their CEOs thought, wow, this is really cool. Um, Then they introduced me to a lot of their VCs. And so Mm -hmm. in this short period of time, I went from not really knowing anyone to having dozens of contacts in uh, Silicon Valley and dozens of contacts in venture capital. But that very first VC I met, Moved really fast. So they gave us the term sheet quickly, short time to respond. It was two and a half million dollars and I'm looking at the basement and I'm looking at two and a half million dollars and I opted for the two and a half million dollars to close it up and move quickly. Came back to Cleveland with that two and a half million dollars. I had a lot of meetings still set for talking to other venture capitalists. Kind of told them all to go away. And then there was drive, which I said, go away. Uh, I'll come talk to you in 12 months, but uh, they were pretty relentless um, of getting a conversation with us. And so at one point I just said, all right, whatever, come on down, come to the facility, come see our customer, come see uh, uh, what we're building. That turned very quickly into a term sheet. They're excited about what we're building. They're excited that we, part of our thesis was to build it here in the Midwest near our customers. So that was, it was something that we had to fight for um, when we were out in Silicon Valley. And uh, they were just really excited about where the technology could go in the future and how this could really help manufacturing and how this could really help just the United States and infrastructure in the long run. So, so they moved really fast. They were really excited about what we're doing. They cut us a $12.5 million term sheet. And so we closed. So we closed $15 million in about a three-month period. And we were a very small company, you know, basically three people still. And so a big part part of what they wanted to do was to have us be closer to them in Columbus and to help us be closer to a larger technical pool, the technical talent pool, as well as they just wanted to be able to help us build something. We were first time founders. We were a very small company. We had a lot of cash on hand. We needed some additional guidance um, to make sure that we actually executed and utilized this capital well and correctly. And so we decided to move down to Columbus to to get that additional guidance, to get that, uh, just to be like that proximity, that close proximity to drive capital. And then really to open up again, the additional talent pool that we saw here in Columbus with Ohio State um, and all the big companies around here that was just a little bit lacking there in Cleveland. Um, And we've seen that be really, really successful for us. People wanna live in Columbus. People wanna build in Columbus. There's an immense amount of talent in Columbus way more than I think the rest of the world truly understands. And uh, we've been able to really find it and you know harness that that great talent here. And I think it's been uh, really great for our business you know, being here and, and being one of the only you know, AI robotics companies uh, in the region.
0: Mm-hmm. How did you land the second customer and then the next? After we closed the Fundamental Drive Capital,
1: we took a look at the product that we had made. As exciting as it was, It wasn't mature technology. Uh, Again, it was built by three people in a basement trying to move as fast as possible. Now we have the capital uh, to kind of take a step back and build it the right way, to build it in a scalable fashion. Um, Building scalable software that's really driven by data is not an easy uh, feat. And it's really tough to, again, make that stack, be able to scale through what you wanna do next. So uh, in 2019, we stopped selling and we started Um, rebuilding the tech stack. Uh, We relaunched the product in uh, July of 2020. Uh, And that's basically when we started selling to to the open market. And uh, how we got the next set of customers was just showing them what was possible. Uh, And we found and leaned on the fact that what we saw in the market was that there was this extreme pain point that customers and companies were really feeling the pain around finish welding. And so we just started talking to additional customers or talking to additional people in the space. We were telling them what we were doing, why we were doing it, and we felt an immediate pull from the market. And so people were not only interested in what we were building, but willing and ready to move fast and sign up to be one of our partners. And so anyone that signed up in 2020 for us was a partner, somebody that we want to like focus on uh, very closely to make sure that they're getting everything that they want out of the system and we're providing that. So um, really focused and sold them and sold, you know, worked with them to build out what these partnerships could could really look like for these early customers and these early adopters.
0: By partners, do you mean they're, they're in a sense, co-designing the sy- each individual system with you?
1: No, not co-designing. Um, really just more focused on that. <clears throat> we want to be able to add flexibility to the system, flexibility that they would need. And so what we deliver is the standard product, um, but we're allowing them to give us suggestions and inputs. We want to make it highest priority to get through these suggestions and input from them of these changes that they want to the stack to be more efficient for them on their their manufacturing facility. And so it's really a prioritization of what goes through our product pipeline and making sure our first and early, early adopters are really taken care of well.
0: And so you did all this mid-pandemic, uh, finishing the rebuild and launching with new customers. Yep. Um Was there a time <laughs> in the uh, March timeframe when things were shutting down, and you know that included um, in some cases manufacturing floors, uh, where you were worried about your viability or or being able to continue? Yeah. So there was that
1: moment in in March for sure where we had a, a real concern. You know, we part of the, part of that pushed back our launch date. We were hoping to launch before July and we had to slow things down. We moved everybody to remote like everybody else did. Um, and we are a physical product company. So as much as we're software, we have to test on real systems with real robots. And that became certainly a challenge. Uh, we kind of paused all hiring at that point and really focused on how do we come up with a strategy to survive COVID? um i think again everybody else was having this moment you know after basically a month of being fully remote and seeing that we were able to continue to make progress at a a pretty good pace that we're really excited about we were able to find ways where we'd have very small numbers you know three to four people on site one per building uh, being able to go and manage the hardware and the equipment. We were able to remote into all the systems from our homes. We were able to test and we were able to just keep moving you know, at a pace that was you know, shockingly fast for us. We rethought through a timeline. We decided you know, July was the time that we still wanted to launch. Uh, we saw that everybody was feeling this pain from uh, the weaknesses in their supply chain um, that the pandemic was really highlighting. We saw that manufacturing was a huge portion of this. When you don't manufacture locally and you depend on global supply chain for a, a lot of things around manufacturing, it's going to cause some huge pain points if that starts to slow down or if it has to stop completely. And we saw this movement starting to build not only in the US, but around the world where you know onshoring manufacturing was becoming a bigger discussion uh, and it was becoming a bigger opportunity for a lot of companies and a lot of countries to start thinking through this. How would they start to move in that direction again? And as we saw this movement starting to be growing and grow, um, that's obviously when we decided to, you know, we really wanted to launch in July. We wanted to make sure that we started to talk to customers that were again, feeling this pain points. And a lot of the customers that we were talking to were feeling the pain from the perspective of all of a sudden, more people wanted to buy things from them locally and um, that's when we started to see again this continuous growth, and how can we help them? Give them the additional possibility to grow their manufacturing operations, to give them the ability to move from one shift to two shift to three shifts easily, and give them the ability to you know uh, produce more and have a, a higher quality. So started to talk to companies through, it, um, found out that a lot of these companies really were interested in continuing to shore up their own labor supply chain. And then it was kind of history from there. We started talking and people were willing to move and make a change. And we were able to get um, sales throughout COVID. As we saw the the market pull happening, we turned on uh, recruiting again. I think at the beginning of the year, we started at 20. At the second half of the year, we added another 40 people to the team. And then we've obviously added another 40 in the the first four months of uh, 2021.
0: And so your brother, Alex Long- Longsbury is your CTO and co-founder. So you were not only three people in a basement, it was two brothers and the third person. Yep. You must really like each other or else, you know, we're <laughs> like, you know, spending half the time giving each other Charlie horses.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, no, we really like each other. We're definitely um, best friends. And so starting the business with him was, was great. There's like a level of communication that you can have with a family member that is really tough to kind of get to. There's a level of trust that you can have with a family member and sometimes it goes really awry. And so I think at the beginning when we were first raising capital, there were certainly people asking questions about, have you done this with your brother? And also um, my father was a co-founder as well. So my brother and my father were co-founders. So it was a, a bit of a, you know, a family business quite at the beginning we were always able to keep it really professional at work and we were always driving towards the same goals and then that level of communication that we had really unlocked the ability for us to move really really fast um so the ability to give incredibly transparent feedback and everybody understanding and completely and intuitively that this isn't you know really anything about you personally but this is about the betterment of the business that was something that we were able to have from day one, which really helped us move quickly. And of course, there's like you know the, every once in a while where that would blow up and we'd wrestle and fight, but you kind of get through it. And we've been able to be really successful, I feel like, with it because we just really again focus on together what is the combined mission.
0: Those first years of development were from that runway you got from the the initial fifteen million. Tell us about adding addition new VC to the. Cap table, and why you needed to raise this, and how it will be used, and you know, how many uh, hires do you expect to be making from that? Uh, really excited to be working with Edition in
1: the future. Um, Lee and Robbie were the two people we really worked with at Edition, and they—they've uh, just been exceptional. Uh, they really see the vision for the company, and they're really bought in. Uh, they're focused on working with companies that really want to change a uh, generation. know, long-term companies, not uh, short fuses. And so it's uh, been really exciting to add them. Um, Part of the conversations I always had with them was that, you know, we really want to focus on building a truly one-of-a-kind company. And uh, what I've learned is it it takes a lot of capital to make that happen. Um, And we want to be able to focus on supplying and building a great product and not having to focus every single day on just shipping, 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 to make sure that um, revenues numbers hit just to get to our next round of capital. Um, And they really understood that and were willing to move to uh, a large check size for us to give us that flexibility and to give us that ability to again, focus on building something uh, that's gonna be really great for the manufacturing industry and really great for our customers. There's this like saying uh, in, in software that if you're not embarrassed by your first deployment, you're too late. And I've been embarrassed by my first deployment I don't think I was too late. Um, And so a big thing for us with manufacturing is that we can't deliver something that's gonna slow them down. We can't deliver something that's going to end up breaking at the facility. We have to have it over engineered to the point where it's really successful, it's really robust. And again, getting to that point takes additional capital. And uh, they were really understanding of making that happen. So um, we're going to use that capital to really grow. And uh, we're growing in headcount pretty drastically. Uh, we were at 60. Uh, we're at 100 now. We're going to be estimating to be closer to 160, 165 um, by the end of the year. And we'll be continuing to grow pretty aggressively past that. The 2022 numbers aren't solid yet, so I don't want to say them quite yet, but the the 160 of 165 is looking at uh, looking like what we'll end uh, the year at, and we're continuing to like, you know, really, really push um, our customers and push our growth, um, at least, you know, looking to, you know, at least, you know, four to five X our contractual ARR in 2021 relative to 2020, and to continue on that trend uh, year over year for a little while is what we really want to push and be really aggressive uh, in the market, as we're seeing that there's a lot of a lot of need out there. Um, so we're going to be pushing our growth very very quickly and utilizing that capital to sustain and move uh, move as fast as we can uh, to deploy to our
0: customers. What kind of advantages or expertise connections do the new investors bring? You know, besides patience and a big checkbook,
1: they're incredibly well connected. You know, Lee's already given us great connections to customers um, and to like future uh, investors as well. So he's been really, really exceptional uh, and has a great network to lean on. Uh, and he has a, a lot of great knowledge of our industry specifically. Um, so we found that to be really, really useful for us um, as we're looking to continue to grow pretty rapidly. Um, but the other part is that he really is truly one of like those visionary investors where he is very much aligned with what we want to do over the next 10, 15, and 20 years. Um, and that's a big part of it uh, for us. Uh, having an investor that really can lean into, into the future and not into just the, the two-year return or the three-year return, as we see this as being long-term, big picture. And then also just the need for it. He has a, a big passion for helping, you know, countries reshore, increase their manufacturing capacity, and it just really connected with him, uh, the story of what we're trying to do as well. So I think from that perspective, there's not a lot of people necessarily in uh, VC that have a strong connection to manufacturing that haven't lived in the Midwest, so East and West Coast. Um, you can get people that are, what is welding? Uh, how do you weld again? And so he, again, having something, having a person that really understood the mission, really understood the market, really understood the technology that we were building, just felt like somebody that was gonna be able to help us stay committed to our long-term vision and not get short-sighted.
0: Um, you mentioned the talent crunch in welding. As you look to you know the growth of your company over the next five to 10 years, do you also see it erasing that kind of binary between blue collar, I'm going to go into manufacturing or welding versus I'm going to be in tech is are you, are you welding those two uh, career paths together? I
1: like to think so, I like to hope so. We're certainly, I think adding a lot of um, technology into the manufacturing world, into the trades world. And I, I think it's, it gives people that ability for a, a, one, a long time, if you grew up in manufacturing, if you grew up in the Midwest, you probably know somebody that's a welder or somebody that's in, um, you know, in manufacturing. And for a long time, there hasn't been an opportunity to be in tech and be in manufacturing. Um, just there really hasn't been. If you want to be in tech, it's almost always been, you know, bigger software companies that are doing data or the bigger consumer companies uh, that are really building consumer products. There hasn't been a great opportunity to really be tech focused, but manufacturing focused. Um, and we're hoping to sort to bridge that gap is I grew up in a machine shop you know, making motorcycles. And so uh, I had this conflict when I was going to school of, well, I want to keep making cool stuff, but I also really like robots. And it's like, at some point, you either have to go and make a decision that you're going to go and be like an engine builder, or you have to make a decision that you're going to go work on some sort of, you know, robots, and it's probably going to be consumer-based or something else. Yeah, it just feels really great, at least from my perspective, that I get to bridge the two gaps for myself. And hopefully that would, there's a lot of people out there as well that want to be able to, to bridge both gaps too.
0: And with the reshoring element, are you hoping that you're part of a manufacturing renaissance for the country or you know, even for Ohio?
1: Definitely. Yeah. So I yeah, grew up in Ohio, was born and raised in Ohio. Yeah, so I've seen the manufacturing start to leave See manufacturing, you manufacturing know, slowly kind of not be as influential. You know, obviously, that's a big part of what we care about is really bringing it back, bringing back the strength of it. Yeah, I think there's going to be a manufacturing renaissance that happens in Ohio and happens in countries all over the place. Um, so we are very excited to be a part of that. I think that's one of the driving cores of our mission is that we want to make that happen and we want to be a vital threat in seeing that come to fruition.
0: So there's a couple other companies that do this, and a lot in, uh, even in the fintech and health IT, the common thread is we're not disruptors. We're not here to break down this industry. We're here to make this industry get better.
1: Yeah, that's definitely us. The whole goal is to grow the industry, Um, really, really help grow manufacturing. We're not here to kill the industry by any by any means. We're really here to try to add leverage to the industry and add firepower to the industry and let it continue to grow and start to you know thrive again. At one point, I think in the, the world, in the United States, there was maybe 700,000 human welders. Uh, I feel like, don't know no, the exact numbers, it's pretty close. And I think you know, closer to today, there might be like 300,000. So we've seen a, a big decrease. Um, and we've been seeing a big decrease in manufacturing in general. And yeah, all we wanna do is make manufacturing just bigger and bigger in the United States and bigger in Ohio.
0: When you found your big problem to solve it was in welding, do you see other applications that once you've perfected this, the technology you've built could be applied in other manufacturing elements?
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. So again, we're not, we're not really talking about it too much, um, but there will be a new product that's launched uh, in the coming future, uh, that will be another step into helping further propel manufacturing forward. Um, it's not going to be welding, but it's going to be something very close and adjacent to welding. And we've definitely seen that. That's a big part of the technology that we're building, is that the goal is not to just stop it at welding, uh, but to continue to uh, look at other pieces in the manufacturing sector and to utilize our vision, our machine learning, and the control of a, a large robot to be able to do other tasks, that currently aren't really being looked at by a lot of other companies, a lot of the revised companies and something that we can utilize learning to allow a system to uh, improve itself and be able to to learn how to do these tasks.
0: Will your growth necessitate a headquarters move or you said you're only like using half of your space right now and I I saw a, uh, I was searching our archive and a like in january of this year you had a modification so it sounded like you're already expanding in the facility
1: yeah so we we've continued to expand into our facility. so we have uh we, we started one bay now we have three uh, and we have yeah we have line of sight of taking uh, additional bays at the facility right now to continue to grow there now we love being columbus and audubon the metro park is is beautiful it's so nice at lunch to just take a walk and to uh just move around and and be in this beautiful metro park and there's a rock climbing wall there which is great as well so a lot of our we have a climbing group at path and and they utilize that at lunch as well so i'm certainly looking to stay right there
0: all right thank you um hope i didn't eat up too much your morning no you did great thank you so much all right take care